Our second scripture is Mark 10, verses 17 through 27. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but for God, for God all things are possible. We celebrate the written word of scripture. Thanks be to God. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Thanks be to God. As we all know, the world was plunged into crisis this week as Russia, unprovoked, invaded its smaller and more peaceful neighbor, Ukraine. A David and Goliath situation, some have called it, and I think that's what a lot of us were thinking. Around the world this morning, even as we are gathered here, people of faith are gathered, uniting in prayer for those who are defending their homeland, for the hundreds of thousands who have been and are being displaced, for the restoration of peace and sanity. It's a fraught time the kind that reminds us of how deeply connected we really are, even with peoples across continents and oceans and many time zones. Today's text reminds us that our faith calls us to compassion and action. For us, at a time like this, that might mean, for example, joining a peaceful protest or donating to a refugee organization or prayerfully just following the unfolding of events. As we pray together today, let us continue to seek the wisdom of the Prince of Peace. Hold the people of Ukraine in our tender concerns and to lean on the everlasting arms, trusting their hold on us and on all of God's children. Let us pray. Be in our words, O Lord, and in our understanding. Be in our hearts and in the cares and the burdens that we bring. Be in our lives and restore us to praise your name 
For we pray in that name, the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Death in a tenured position. If there are any uh, Carolyn Heilbrunn fans in the room or uh, in the cyberspace room this morning, the virtual room, any of you out there are Carolyn Heilbrunn fans, then you know this is a borrowed title, the title of one of her books. She's the author of the Kate Fansler detective series and taught at Columbia University in New York City from 1960 well into the 90s and managed to protect all during that long time her scholarly reputation uh, by the use of a pen name she wrote under the name of Amanda Cross. Uh, she set all her works of fiction on college campuses, which makes them very interesting, of course, to those of us that work in education, like at that set of castles across the street from the church. Uh, that's a territory that Carolyn Heilbrunn knew well because she was, as it happens, not only the first woman hired by Columbia University's famous English department, but the first woman tenured. Heilbrunn was also a stalwart of the feminist movement, a heroine to many who followed her, at least for two good reasons that I can think of. One, her scholarly work on women in literature, particularly there's a book I love, if you haven't seen it, called Writing a Woman's Life. It kept, it's the kind of book that many of us kept on our nightstands and read the way that you might read a devotional. So that's one reason, and the other is the fact that she was reportedly the first woman in all of academia to stop wearing hose and heels. <laughs> you gotta love that. But I think of her this morning. I think of her this morning as, uh, because as a storyteller, she and the writer of Mark's gospel have some things in common. For one thing, this story in Mark 10 is a story about tenure, about death. It's a story about letting go. There is a veritable downsizing of, festival of downsizing going on here in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. Downsizing, downsizing, downsizing all over the place. Are you of the tribe that likes to throw things out? My mother always says in every household there should be one of each, a saver and a thrower-outer. If you're from that tribe, if you're a disciple of Marie Kondo, then this part of Mark is for you. Self-denial is invited. Childlikeness is commended. Monogamy upheld. All kinds of downsizing, stripping, streamlining are going on here. Peter's three superfluous booths are scorned. Jesus is transfigured, presumably down to his essence. Streamlining right and left, if your hand offends you, if your eye offends you. A picture of radical downsizing is being held up in this part of Mark and the passages leading up to today's text. In fact, the only accretions, the only add-ons that Jesus allows for in the life of faith <laughs> are a cup of cold water and, oh yes, a cross. Chapter 8 in the Gospel of Mark, that famous line, take up your cross and follow me. Radical decluttering is going on in the Gospel of Mark and in our passage today, so maybe we shouldn't have been so surprised about the rich man. But boy, howdy, are we. <laughs> boy, oh boy, are we surprised. How much weight does a camel need to lose? 
all of it, all of its layers, all of our layers, all of our ability to swathe and insulate and cover ourselves, all of it has to go? Well, I don't know. I, I hate to say it, but I think the thing I would be most, most loath to sell would be my wardrobe. You want to hit me where I live? I have to have Nordstrom's. I have to have Ellen Tracy and Eileen Fisher, swaths of color and strong, clean lines, and don't forget the charming Mr. Stuart Weitzman. I need clothes to wrap and swaddle and swirl. I need them to direct and redirect the eye of the beholder. I need Trump boy. I'm passionate about clothes that create long, strong lines that fool the eye, that distract, <laughs> yeah. that distract from the <clears throat> well, shall we just use the French expression, avoir du poids. I have given my Missouri farm country cooking culinary heritage, I have more than enough accretions in my life already. Accretions. Interesting, isn't it, though, that my, net, my method of dealing with this kind of problem is to become preoccupied with what I can add. I don't think I'm alone, because as much as I hate not being as slim as I used to be, and believe me, hate is too weak a word, as much as I hate not being as slim as I used to be, I hate one thing more, losing, letting go, lacking, something there is that loves to add. He was willing to add, he said. His to-do list was long, his plate was full, his calendar booked two years out, but he was willing, he really seemed to be willing. Just tell me, he said to Jesus, what do I still need to do? Well, you probably saw how Jesus played him, didn't you? The, the wave of the hand said it all, you know the commandments. But then the rich guy said something back to Jesus that I couldn't quite catch, and Jesus shifted. I would say he definitely softened. There was a sweetness in the way he leaned in. It's not about what you need to add to your checklist, I heard Jesus say. It's not about getting one more thing right. It's not about being more conscientious. It's not about paying your way. I could swear I heard Jesus say that. It was something like that. He was certainly in there pitching trying to make this guy unclench. A lot of people didn't see the way Jesus held out his hand near the end, but everybody saw the poor guy's face. I don't, I don't think he even heard anything after go sell. He was willing to add, he said. Hard as we try to reclaim Mark's text, Hard as we try to play the same movie on our mental motion picture screens as was going on in his, we know that we don't really know. We know that what Jesus did with his hand and face, we don't really know. We don't know if he said, you know the commandments, or you know the commandments. We don't know if down through the centuries the preachers who have interpreted this story to be a story about radical sacrifice, about being willing to give up everything for Jesus, 
have been right? We don't know, but we have a couple of clues. For one thing, we know that Mark's Jesus is frustrated <laughs> with the disciples. Do you not yet understand, he says in chapter 8. There's something they are not getting. We know that one of the things they're not getting is the thing about power. They keep thinking Jesus' kingdom is about power, and Jesus keeps telling them it's about servants and hauling out little children as audiovisual aids. We know they don't get it about power, and we know they don't get it about wealth. For, as you may have noticed, the text does not say, the rich man went away disappointed. It says he was shocked and went away grieving. Doesn't say the disciples were a little put off. It says they were amazed and greatly astounded. Amazed, astounded by what Jesus said. Jesus had to reiterate, he had to say it again. They were so greatly astounded that they couldn't take it in. Interesting, isn't it? How those particular words often go by us when we read this familiar passage. I suppose when I've read this passage before, I've sort of vaguely thought that the disciples were surprised for the same reason that I'm surprised, because Jesus asked for so much. But no. It turns out they were astounded by what Jesus said about how hard it is for the rich. They were gobsmacked and bumfoozled by it because they thought, everybody thought, that the rich were the shoe ends. Like everybody in ancient Palestine, the disciples took wealth as a sign of God's favor. If you were wealthy, it was because God had found righteousness, at least some kind of righteousness, in you. And not only that, but if you were wealthy, you could pay. The poor were dependent upon the mercies of the priests who doled out the assigned sacrifices, right? The difference between a calf and a pigeon to a poor person was huge. If you were wealthy, though, you could pay. You could sweeten the temple's coffers. You could soften the priest's sympathies. You could insinuate yourself into the seats of the righteous. If you were wealthy, you were in the position to deal with your sins. The price was doable, manageable. So when Jesus suggested to the rich man that he give up his wealth, I don't think that he was using his spiritual x-ray vision to read down into the man's soul and figuring out that this was the one particular spiritual problem the man had and it was with money. I don't think that. I don't think that he was writing a prescription for preachers down through the ages and for generations of Christians to come, requiring that the one thing a person must do is give up the very thing a person loves most. No, I don't think he was saying that John D. Rockefeller literally had a better chance of getting through the night deposit slot of the Chase Manhattan Bank than of getting into the kingdom. I don't think Jesus was saying that. I think he was doing two things. One, I think Jesus was offering a critique of the religious system of the time, of the temple system, of what he called in another place, you know, the den of thieves. 
critiquing the priests and the money changers, the bankers and their holding companies, Jesus indicts those who live on the back of the poor in this text. Putting it the other way, Jesus announces God's bias, God's preference toward the poor. Jesus pronounces the blessing on the poor in Mark 10, just as surely as he does in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 or Luke 6. And here is the big, fat, shocking good news indeed. Here, Jesus says loud and clear, not only blessed are the poor, but it's easier for the poor and nobody can buy their way in. Blessing the poor is one of the things I think Jesus is doing in Mark 10, and the other thing applies to us. In Mark 10, when Jesus asked the rich man to give up his possessions, he was asking him to give up the thing he depended on most for his security. Asking him to give up the thing he counted on, the very thing he imagined would make him worthy and or get him in the door. When Jesus says go sell, he's inviting the rich man to let go of his spiritual security, his false security, in favor of faith. And he invites us to strip off our security blankets too. What is it that in your heart of hearts you believe makes you acceptable to God? Well, I know what you're fine analytical mind says, but what does it say at the bottom of your soul? What makes you acceptable? Believing the right things? Good deeds? Belonging to a certain group? There are lots of possibilities. Are there people who secretly believe that it is their money that God loves? Well, yes, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I sh I'm sure there are. But since Key 73's evangelism efforts to reach the country with the correct answer to that famous question about what you're supposed to say to St. Peter at the pearly gates, there are not so many people anymore who think they can buy their way in. Are there people who believe that their race or nationality is really the thing that provides them the ultimate security? Yes. I'm sorry to say yes. There are people that think that, and you don't have to look far this week to see the face of the one, of one of them on your screens. The one who believes that his tanks and missiles and troops will secure his place in history. Who is willing to take hundreds of lives and hundreds of thousands of homes so far to claim the great gates of Kiev, or as we say now, Kiev. Yes, there are people who believe nationality or race is everything. But none of them is in the room this morning. No, here in 94960, we have our own secret beliefs about what it takes to squeeze through the needle's eye. And we hold tight to those. Our toes on the threshold of change or growth in our lives and yet we hold on. Even though many of us know what very, very well what needs to be let go of, we somehow manage to continue to believe God's favor rests on what we add. Oh, we do. Despite everything we know, we do. By adding committees and activities and causes 
events and excursions and dates to our calendars and data to our spreadsheets, degrees and accomplishments and crazy, hectic, Sabbathless lives. We think we are doing the best we can, doing our best, doing the best a person can do, but we are wrong. As wrong as the rich man, as mistaken as the disciples, as wrong as a camel is wide. No matter what we are depending on to help pull us through the needle's eye, Jesus' word to us is the same. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Depend on me. Where is your faith, I hear Jesus asking, and not the, oh, what's the matter with you, where is your faith version of the question, but the tender version of the question. Jesus is reminding us, where is your faith? Let go of the fear that's holding you back, or the anger that is making it impossible to pray, or the noise that is drowning out God's voice. Go, let go, let go. It would be like flying, I suppose, if we could do it. If It would feel like that first night that you learned to jitterbug, the swinging through space, the whooshing, the perfect blend of freedom and control, the feeling that your energy would just go on forever. It would be like that. It would be like that all-out, no-holds-barred water fight that you had with your sister and the kids next door, where the laughing and the shrieking ran down your face with the sunscreen and the chlorinated pool water. It would be like that. It would be like that moment that she said yes and threw her arms around you, knocking the ring out of your hand. It would be like the ride down the backside of Tam on a new mountain bike. It would be a little like hanging your bathrobe on the hook, stepping on and seeing the scales needle plummet. It would be like flying, like the night you got the tenor harmony just right and sang the whole song through from the heart. It would be like flying, I suppose, if we could do it. Oh, not possible for you to do it, you say? I know, it's okay. As Jesus said, with human beings, things are not always possible, but everything is possible with God. Amen.